the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Gavin Peacock, my friend, he's a pastor at Calvary Grace Church in Calgary, Alberta. He's uh, Director of International Outreach for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He's the co-author of four books. He's a former Premier League footballer, captain, uh, and, uh, and also a dashing, a dashing guy. He, he's, he's a good dresser, I should say. I don't think I've ever said that publicly on a podcast, but I can't—there I, there you go, Gavin. How's that for an intro? Great. Best I've ever had. <laughs> I, I and people can't and people can't see the evidence of it either. So they just right. have to believe you. That's right. They just have to take it on faith. Well, Gavin, you and I have uh, have recently published a trilogy entitled "What Does the Bible Teach About Lust? What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism? And What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality?" Uh, we've discussed on a separate podcast some of the issues we were trying to bring out there. And what I would like to do in this podcast with you, my most featured guest on City of God ever is talk through statements we hear today that people don't necessarily think about. In other words, our culture has trained us to hear these things and even say these things without skipping a beat, without batting an eye, if you will. But you and I share a common conviction that would want to interrogate and think through these statements theologically. How does that sound to you? Sounds good. Let's do it. He's buckled up. He's ready to go, folks. Okay. So, Here's the first one. You've written about this recently. <laughs> yep. What do you think when you hear, uh, let's, let's say, a guy, a guy who is thankfully excited about, you know, being a father, but when you hear a guy say, we're pregnant, what's your response? Uh, I have a visceral response. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a bugbear of mine, but I mean, a guy or a girl that says, we're pregnant. I mean, well, first of all, I think, you know, you see, language is the battleground um, that needs to be won if you're going to win the minds of people who are unsuspecting. Mm. And, and often we just fall into using new phrases and terms without really thinking sort of where they're, what they mean, where they come from, even though if we know what we mean, you know. So the term we're pregnant uh, is just common parlance uh, nowadays. Um, and, and that's in an age, you see, that's become subjected to an egalitarian, gender-neutralizing, uh, emasculating, even defeminizing ideology, which is the waters in which we swim. Yes. Um, you know, the, just think of the progression o- over time from uh, phrases like "my wife is with child" hmm. um, to, to 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 Mary is pregnant to we're expecting to we're having a baby and now to we're pregnant. The change is gradual and it's subtle, and that's why you know most of us don't even see it. It coming, and yet the fact is this: that a man impregnates a woman. It's not the other way round. It's not a mutual action. Right. He gives her his sperm, and it fertilizes her 
egg is a one-way action and she then becomes pregnant not him it's her body that changes the hormones flow her shape changes and she goes through the labor and and gives birth to the child but you see the culture around us is seeking to make all things equal and 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 has got flatness and oneness a, a nebulous oneness as its aim um even absurdly saying that a man can have a baby by changing gender yes um so the term we're pregnant is is just seen as this as a triumph for the new empathetic emotionally connected modern men and these are men who sort of get women and and eagerly embrace equality of, of parenthood um and and it's not wrong that uh, men should be connected to their wives and and and, and be empathetic and and obviously share uh, the parenthood, fatherhood is a is a much needed uh, thing in this world. In fact, fatherlessness is a is a massive problem. Yes, we need fathers who are involved in their children's lives and and who are leaving their homes and protecting their wives and and that. But fathers are different from mothers and play a different role than mothers in obviously the conception of the child and in the way the mother then is given that unique uh, responsibility from creation. Of, of giving birth um, in the curse is applied to the pain of childbirth, as it were. Eve is the mother of all living. Uh, woman is that one with the unique role, not the man. And even if you think of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the angel came to Mary and not to Joseph. And Mary is pregnant, and gives birth to Jesus, not Joseph. Mm. And so mm. just as uh, the term we're pregnant emasculates or even if feminizes men, it actually defeminizes w- women. And I would say then, as a final line, that then both the glory and uniqueness of manhood, womanhood, fatherhood, and motherhood are subtly undermined by that term, we're pregnant. And so you get back again to an attack on God's creation design rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, that, that, those are just sh- very prescient words, uh, uh scalpel-like uh, in, in their helpfulness, honestly, because we, we hear this sort of language today, and we don't, again, bat an eyelash, because it's no. just the gender-neutral, everything is gray, everything is merging into sameness, neo-pagan kind of thinking uh, that that is all around us today. It's funny, Gavin, because your words point us to think through science. <laughs> In other words, the science of the human body. I don't mean scientism, a naturalistic worldview. I mean the fact that God has made the male body and the female body distinct and has enabled, as you said, this process of conception to occur, and then a child gestates in a woman's womb. Well, look, what is more pro-science than recognizing these realities? And yet our so-called science-driven culture is sanding these things down, playing them down. You think of uh, new birth certificates across the world, progenitor A and progenitor B, you know, combining to create this child in gender-neutral ways. That that leads me to the term parent, by the way. Lots of people, yeah. similar to this phrase, we're pregnant, lots of good-hearted, well-meaning people use the term parent. Okay, it's it's in the evangelical literature. It's in reform circles. I mean, it, it's everywhere. It's a common term, and and I'm even I'm willing to use it in certain contexts myself. But I think, in similar terms to your right critique of we're pregnant, we need to again think through the language we're using. 
Is there overlap between what fathers and mothers do in raising children and discipling them? Mm -hmm. We're not just raising children. We're discipling them to know Jesus Christ as God's grace works. Yes, there's tremendous overlap. There's all sorts of shared skills and, and duties, you know, that we have as fathers and mothers. And yet, and yet, Gavin, we're not gender-neutral parents, are we? We're fathers no. and mothers. You agree? Indeed, indeed. And even if we think of, of the fatherhood of God, which has been very much uh, under attack theologically, so to the point where uh, some churches would even uh, promote that God is is father and mother, or God is just parent, yes. you see. Uh, God is our parent. Um, no, God is father. Now, the Bible speaks of him uh, nurturing and loving like a mother, but not mother. He is father. So there's there's a general flattening that's going on, even when you talk about the Trinity. Um, yes. So it's, it, it, it's connected in, in some way. Um, but the but the issue of, of language is, is something that's so very important for us to, to think through. Um, you know, we deal in words. Words are important. Um, you know, to, to, to just very briefly give another um, example, just think of the term gay now. Um, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, you were referred to uh, as a sodomizer. It was the act that, that, that defined what you were. Then it was uh, homosexual. Um, it was a, a, a psychological issue. And then it's moved to gay. Now it's an identity. And once you move to the identity arena, you, you can't help it. Whereas before it was the action. Yes, you were responsible for that. Um, so the language then shifts the, shifts the, um, the perception of, of people out there. Um, now gay is an identity. You're not responsible for it. Now gay is actually morally good, the culture is convinced. Language is very key. And these are just subtle underminings of, of, of God's creation design uh, that is just, in the term we're pregnant, is just another evidence. And people will laugh, oh, it's silly, yeah, we know what we mean. Yeah, do you really? If you think through it, uh, I think you might pull back uh, from using that language if you, if you want to be uh, true to God's design. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but in a less theological manner, I know women, uh, Christian women, uh, strong women of God, who, if they hear a phrase like that, you know, if their husband slips into that kind of usage, again, perhaps meaning well, but he uses that phrase, I know <laughs> women who will look askance at that man, at their husband, and go, you are? Or, we a similar term, we just had a baby. Again, maybe yeah. used with good intentions, but I know women, yeah, yeah. I have seen this happen in real time and space, who will say, yeah. oh, you had a baby? Uh, you, you had a baby in your womb for nine months. How you feeling? <laughs> you, you you were woken up night after night. You had morning sickness week after week. You had labor pains yeah. that make you want to, you know, claw the paint off the walls. Oh, how interesting! I didn't know that. And I think yeah. that uh, that kind of uh, you know response is is very much justified. Oh, okay. indeed. I remember. Yeah. Um, and I think I actually mention it in 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 the books that we've written together. Uh, that you know, when my wife was was pregnant um, and when she was giving birth, you know that was that was a time that was it was so evident the, uh, the difference between us both. And and when she was heavily pregnant, I would see that her belly move. You know, if she was lying in the bath or something, and there'd be a leg or an, you know a foot sticking out, and I would just say that 
is just I just don't even know what that must feel like. It must feel awful. And she said it feels the most natural thing in the world huh. uh, that I'm growing this body, you know, this person inside me. To her, it's just so natural. For me, it would be like, oh, that's a horrifying thought. Yes. Um, but that's part of the glory of of womanhood. There is that pain involved. There is that um, suffering involved. And yet, only a woman can produce. Uh, a baby can actually nurture that baby in in the womb, and that's why then flowing into womanhood and and motherhood and, and spiritual mothering is that particular nurturing that that women have uh, given to them uh, in, in their creation role. That uh, they have that in a way that men don't, or men don't have to the same degree. Yeah, and and I love what you're bringing out there. There's a kind of um, response that we should have on the spot to this, and and I think we should challenge such language uh, when we hear it in the church. Ultimately, what we're pointing to here, to think of how Paul describes women having long hair in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that many evangelicals might even set aside today, or, or some pastors might be scared to preach because it lines out differences of sex, you know, these sorts of things, talks about the Trinity, these kind of matters. Uh, but Paul there says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, it's the glory of a woman that she has long hair. We're not talking about certain situations where she can't have long hair. We're talking about the distinctiveness of a woman. And it's not just right. It's not just you sexes, men and women, you need to present yourself distinctly. That's not ultimately where the Scripture drives us, is it? You've captured it well. It's the glory of God. It's the joy of men and women being gospel-captivated men and gospel-captivated women to the glory of God. Mm. Amen. Okay, another, another statement. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to as many as I planned because this is too much fun. This is what always happens with you, Gavin. <laughs> The next, I talk too long. That's no, what the problem is. <laughs> no, it's no. We just we just get going, and uh, and and um, you know the dust cloud continues. The snowball picks up more snow. Okay, the next phrase that we hear today, uh, again, probably with some good intentions, with people who mean well, is the gospel doesn't make you straight; it makes you holy. Discuss. Hmm. <laughs> well. Uh, yes, it, 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 it does make you holy in terms of this, this idea of we, we become new creations in Christ, we're being conformed uh, to the image of Christ. But, but what is part of holiness? Part of holiness is being conformed to God's Word and, and God's design. Um, yes. And I think, you know, that, that phrase, it, to say it falls short, is not the right word to use it or phrase to use i would say it needs a bit more fleshing out is what well, what is holy and of course god's um god's creation design for the sexes that is this uh complementarity of the sexes that's what the the gospel then re- returns us to so we're not just christian we're christian men and women um and we uh then are we have the uh, ability then to live as God created us to live as men and women, uh, given God's design. Um, I've seen this uh, happen uh, with uh, with a man in my congregation uh, who uh, lived as a woman uh, for 10 years in the 1990s. He, he left his wife and children, and he, um, he had the surgery paid for by the province. 
um, and he lived as, as a woman until the Lord saved him out of it. Uh, once saved, he returned to living as he ought to live as a uh, Christian man, uh, presented as a man. Uh, now he is I, he's a 70-year-old man. I call him a father in our, our church. There's been scars physically and emotionally and relationally from his past sin. Um, he hasn't uh, and doesn't have desire for marriage, but he does respect the uh, design of God, uh, created equal, uh, created different, and with this complementarity of the sexes, so that he can be uh, the man that God created him to be. That's a that's a powerful example. Um, that's illustrated yes. in in the books uh, on transgender that we've uh, just uh, co-authored together, um, and that's a powerful example of really. Yes, the gospel does return us to holiness, but part of holiness is then to live in the complementarian way that God creates us to be. Yeah, that's beautifully said. That's beautifully said. It's it's not that we have to choose one or the other here, is it? We can we can be gluttons, <laughs> understood in a theological way and in a moral way, if I may push the language there. In other words, we're not choosing a, a gospel that makes us holy, or a gospel that returns us to creation design. We may not even know this. We may not have any training in this. The church in which we're saved, the movement that draws us to Christ, may not, frankly, have a a very developed understanding of manhood and womanhood. There are a good number of pulpits out there and ministries out there, sadly today, that don't talk a whole lot about what it means to be a redeemed man and a redeemed woman. There's honestly kind of a common evangelical formulation today that basically almost sees us in gender-neutral terms, continues preaching the gospel, praise God for that, but then sees us effectively as just just redeemed people. Now, of course we're redeemed people, but we're redeemed men and redeemed women. And so we need to make very clear that when you come to Christian faith, as you are saying, things change. Things really do change, and you are both returned to God's creational design, but then you're actually not returning to Eden alone. You're, you're being brought into the reality of the new creation. You're a, you could say it this way. You're a new creation man and a new creation woman, and whether you're married or single is not the point. You as a God-captivated man, you as a God-captivated woman— Give God glory by honoring him in your day-to-day, largely anonymous, grinding it out life as a man and as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you think of, um, of the church, the terms that they use in the scriptures of the church in familial terms, you know? Yes. Um, young men are to honor young women and treat them as sisters in all purity. Mm. Um, obviously, that changes when... Uh, they get married, they're not a sister, although they're a sister in Christ, they're the wife or, or the husband. But then he talks of mothers and, and, and fathers, the spiritual mothers and fathers in, in the church. So even that, there's, there's gender-specific or sex-specific language used. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's very important that, that churches teach on biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. If you've got a strong pulpit, if you're getting a good um, and, and, and strong Sunday school teaching, adult Sunday school teaching, you're getting good doctrine and the whole counsel of God taught uh, throughout. Then if you have your 
men's studies and women's studies, however you do them in seasonally or, or, or weekly throughout the, 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 the year, then it's a, it's a great opportunity then to focus at least for part of that year some concentrated studies on manhood and womanhood because um, as the culture has, uh, has moved to be increasingly gender neutral egalitarian so too has the church unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, and and people are looking around young men young women are looking around as family is disintegrated um, where's the well, where's the example of what it is to be a man before me, where's the example of what it is to be a woman? Where is fatherhood and motherhood being um, modelled for me uh, as a and, and marriage as a picture of Christ and the church? You know, I, I speak to lots of, of, of men's groups. I've, I've spoken to women uh, as well, and, and if I'm to say to, to the men, "What is it to be a man of God?" Oh, they'll come back to me and they'll say, like you said, you know, generic Christian stuff. You know, to be kind and joyful and peaceful. I say, yeah, that's that is for every Christian, but yes. tell me what is to be a man and not a woman? What is the difference? Or a woman and not a man? Can you explain it? Can you train your child in it? Or other young men and women, could you pull them along and, and, and show them the glory of God's design from the scriptures? Yes, in creation uh, and affirmed in the new creation uh, in Christ. And, and you'll find that, that the, the Christians in the church are very uh, poorly taught and they don't really have a clue how to define it. And so they've bought into the egalitarian culture of the day. Now, that's why we need uh, the clear and good teaching on it. And that's why if you don't have the teaching on the, on the differences between the two sexes, that's why you will move quite quickly and easily towards the, the LGBTQ agenda that is, floating around today and think, well, it's not that bad because you've not got robust scriptural arguments. And the church needs that to be then confident in not only what we say, but, but, but what we do. And, and, you know, I just see a, a, finally on this whole thing, um, a great opportunity for the church to get holy um, on the issues, but to live out the differences in our uh, homes and, and in the church and present a real a joyful, uh, glorious counterculture to a world that is really on an untenable uh, downward spiral. And then it becomes a mission moment to actually present the gospel uh, and the glory of God to people out there. Wow. So much there. Yes. I, I think that last point is so important. At the very moment when, sadly, some evangelicals, not all, but some, are actually moving away from uh, what some would see as the sharper edges of Scripture, uh, the teachings about the sexes, uh, the call to a woman, a, a wife to submit to her husband, the call to to men to pursue eldership in the local church as as the God-appointed shepherds and teachers and leaders of the flock. Um, at, at the very time when Christians are moving away from those realities to some degree— that's when people around us actually are in tremendous confusion about what it means to be a man and a woman. And so actually, manhood and womanhood, I believe, and we are seeing, will be evangelistic. In other words, the scriptural doctrine of redeemed manhood and redeemed womanhood stands out like a jewel at midday today because people have no sense of what it means to be a man or a woman. So so one of these, this is not the only evangelistic throughway 
for the church today. There are many other doctrines we could talk about that I believe you know, are now and always going to win sinners to Jesus Christ or be part of that whole council witness to sinners. Nonetheless, this is an age in which any traditional sense of manhood and womanhood either has collapsed or is collapsing, depending on where a person is. And so this is actually the time not to sand down and play down uh, biblical manhood and womanhood, but to celebrate these things. One last point of application here to, to bring our conversation full circle. When we talk about leaders in the church, it's great to use that kind of language, but we need to make clear here, like we were talking about with fathers and mothers, that in the church, actually, leadership structure is defined. There are elders and deacons, and then there's congregational authority as well. And so we need to, we need to line out, don't we today, Gavin, that we're not, we're not gender-neutral, amorphous uh, thought leaders, to use an overworked term, uh, if you're called to be in leadership in the local church, really the only two terms Scripture is going to know in the New Testament are are elders and deacons. Indeed, uh, uh, and you know the the elders in the church are biblically qualified men, and part of being biblically qualified uh, as a man is that you, if you're a married man, you're to manage your own household well, so that you know just as you're a husband and father. In the in the nuclear family, you 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 then bring that uh, that husband fatherly uh, care then to the church family. That's right. Um, and so the two then are connected. The, the language is there in in First Timothy, and, and the parallel is there. So it, it, these things have far-reaching uh, effects. And I'll just say one one last thing. Just thinking there as you were speaking in terms of. Training our children for marriage, you know, in an age where marriage has been redefined and marriage is, 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 is considered, you know, not as highly by any means as, as it used to be, certainly in the, in the culture, but I would say even in the church is no, uh, you know, train your children towards these things, model it uh, in, the, in the marriage, a, a Christ-like husband who, who is head of his home and, and loves and protects and provides for his wife and children, and a wife who is church-like in her submissiveness and respect for her husband and, and nurturing of her children. When children see that, that, that picture even of the gospel, it's a gospel witness to them, but it's also then a display of what it is to be a man and what it is to, to be a woman, and parents can model that and even... Uh, train their children to aspire to that at, at, at the right age. Um, that's not going on in a lot of Christian homes because they're not delineating the differences well enough and training their children again in the to be men and to be women. And part of that will be the majority of people will still get married. But I do a lot of marriage counselling. You often get you know Christian couples that will come to you for that marriage counselling and they've never been trained. In, in what it is to be a husband uh, or, or a wife. They're trying to learn it in six weeks before the marriage. No, it should have been trained all the way through. Yes. Um, and, of course, think then again about what a witness that is then to uh, friends and family who aren't believers around. You know, imagine, you know, that what it looks like to another couple where where you as the Christian husband are Christ-like towards your, your wife and, and she respects uh, you as, uh, as the husband what a difference that is and what a witness or if you 
children's friends come into your home and they see the way that you interact and the, the way that children uh, obey their parents, it, it has a, a far-reaching effect in terms of, uh, of evangelism. And as I said earlier, presenting that, that, that glorious counterculture uh, to the world around. Amen. Well, I really appreciate your contributions here on the podcast, Gavin. Thank you for those wise and really stimulating words. Uh, we need to think through what we're hearing today. Uh, we need to not be taken captive, Colossians 2.8, by worldly philosophies. Philosophies aren't just presented you know, in lectures and classrooms. They come in, t- in, in tiny form, in bite-sized form, in the language mm-hmm. we use. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. And uh, folks, we do encourage you to check out that trilogy, What Does the Bible Teach About Lust? What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism? Thank you, Gavin, for being on today. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.